The people that run our society feel the same way about us, the citizens of the United States, that they feel about the citizens of South Vietnam. They may tell you that you're special because you're an American, but you're not. You're listening to episode 746 of Unwelcome Guests, The Tyranny of Enemy Images, Part 1. I'm Robin Upton, and that short quote we heard was author and researcher Douglas Valentine with, I think, one of the least contentious beginnings we've ever had to the show. Its importance, I think, will become relevant to you as we hear the next hour, in which Douglas Valentine explains about the Phoenix Program, a systematic and psychopathic effort to undermine social cohesion, because South Vietnam happened to be populated by people who didn't approve of the US by and large. They thought, right, well, we need a scorched earth policy here, and if we need to destroy this society to save it, then so be it. As we shall hear, although they were ultimately unsuccessful in that operation, that hasn't stopped them from using what they've learnt in the Phoenix program as a basis for similar operations ongoing worldwide. Many thanks to Bonnie Faulkner, whose excellent guns and butter provided the raw material. This interview and another one next week, which stirred me out of sloth and got an episode together. I've slightly cut hesitations but I shall link to the original audio. This is from Guns and Butter, episode 358. Many thanks again to Bonnie Faulkner. If you'd like to hear more of the same, you can go to her website, gunsandbutter.org. They have now refined these systems and, and the way to organize and manage them so that the Phoenix model can be perfectly applied anywhere around the world. And the CIA, it actually has created... Uh, 10, 15, 20 of these Phoenix-style centers around the world and is now organizing itself in this manner so it can more perfectly coordinate with military forces and the State Department in countries where it's, uh, it's fighting this war on terror. Douglas Valentine is the author of several works of historical nonfiction, including The Phoenix Program, about the CIA in Vietnam, and The Strength of the Wolf and the Strength of the Pack, which discussed the history of federal drug law enforcement. He also edited a poetry anthology with our eyes wide open, Poems of the New American Century. His latest book is The CIA as Organized Crime, How Illegal Operations Corrupt America and the World. Today we discuss the Phoenix program in Vietnam, how systems analysis was used to implement the program, and how the Phoenix model is still in use today. Your book... The Phoenix Program, America's Use of Terror in Vietnam, was originally published in 1990, but trashed by a review in the New York Times by Morley Safer, who'd been a reporter in Vietnam. 
You have written that the book was killed because it said that Phoenix never would have succeeded if the reporters in Vietnam hadn't covered for the CIA. Your book, The Phoenix Program, America's Use of Terror in Vietnam, has now been published online by the Forbidden Bookshelf series. With regard to the war in Vietnam in general... Your book paints a very complex picture of the bureaucratic structures of both the civilian and military components and their interfaces with each other. A constantly shifting chain of command, personnel, programs, strategies, tactics. It was impossible for me to track it all. The whole enterprise reads like a god-awful mess, even apart from the incredible violence and carnage of that war, and the Phoenix program in particular. In your book, you mention organizational reforms that paved the way for Phoenix. What were you referring to? It helps to have a little history. So, you know, to put it in context, like you said, it's a very big subject. And um, just let me lead up to how it all came to be. It would only take a minute or two. But uh, as your listeners may know, the United States first intervened in Vietnam in around 1954, 1955, when the country was divided in half. And um, the great powers of the world were going around dividing up countries all over the world at the time. Korea got divided up. A lot of countries got divided up. And Uh, The North went to what were called the Communists under Ho Chi Minh, and the South went to the United States, which installed a puppet president named Diem. Diem was a Catholic, and he did not have widespread support via uh, Vietnam, was 95% Buddhist. So by 1963... It was evident that um, the Americans could not gain any political, real political support in South Vietnam with ZM as president. So the CIA bumped him off uh, in 1963. They allowed a, a cabal of South Vietnamese generals to knock off ZM. And they put in a cabal of Buddhist generals, and they thought this would help gain support of the rural population for the American presence in South Vietnam. And they began really waging a counterinsurgency against the rural population. Uh, and it was very intense. And the CIA was leading that effort to pacify the South Vietnamese um, population and make them support the South Vietnamese government which did not represent any of their interests, but um, that was the struggle that uh, the CIA was facing at the time. And they put a lot of programs in place, which were called pacification programs. They set up a, um, a secret interrogation center in each of uh, South Vietnam's 44 provinces. And they created what were called counter-terror teams, in every province, which um, would go off and, and hunt uh, uh, the supporters of the Viet Cong. And they set up what were called armed propaganda teams, uh, which would go into the villages and try to propagandize people. And they also set up in 1964 
a lot of sort of Stalinist tribunals. Some of them were military and some of them were civilian, in which uh, anybody who didn't actively support the South Vietnamese government could be tried on national security charges without any evidence and sent to jail, sent to prison. So they put all these um, programs, the CIA put all these programs in place. And in 1965, the United States government sent the military in because the war still wasn't going very well. And when the United States military arrived, there was, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers were fighting. Um, North Vietnamese troops had now started to infiltrate along the Ho Chi Minh trails, coming into um, mostly the northern and, and central parts of South Vietnam. But by 1966, the United States realized it still did not have the support of the South Vietnamese citizenry, which was overwhelmingly supporting what was called the National Liberation Front. Uh, the, the, the Americans had the support of, you know, the bourgeoisie, which was in the cities. But out in the, out in the countryside, they did not have the support of the people. So in late 1966, the White House told the CIA to create what was called a general staff for pacification. And they did this secretly. And by the summer of 1967, the CIA had created this general staff for pacification, which combined all of the CIA programs that it was conducting in the countryside and in the cities with all the U.S. military programs and all the State Department programs all the South Vietnamese programs which were involved in pacification. And that, that was called the Phoenix Program. The Phoenix Program was based on what you referred to earlier, systems theory, systems analysis. The idea was to coordinate all these many systems which were in place uh, in South Vietnam and which were designed to pacify the South Vietnamese um, population. And they did this secretly, and they created this secret um, organization called Phoenix, which had, apart from its mission of coordinating some 25 or 30 different ongoing programs in South Vietnam, but it had the, it had the overall purpose of pacifying the South Vietnamese uh, civilians, and that pacifying them meant either coercing or enticing them to support the government. And if uh, they didn't support, off to jail they went. And no trial necessary. And the other part of Phoenix was what was called an attack on the Viet Cong infrastructure. This was uh, the part of the Phoenix that's most known to people, the assassination squads, the torture centers, through a, um, a nationwide network of informants, uh, the CIA ran what was called the Hamlet Informant Program, in which the police uh, established informants in every village, in every district, in every province in South Vietnam that they could. And those informants would inform on any civilian who was in any way sympathetic to the National Liberation Front. Those names, uh, people would be brought into the interrogation centers. They'd be worked over. They'd be made to inform. They'd be made to turn into double agents. And if they didn't, off to the security court they went, or they took them out back and shot them. 
And once they had the names of the people, and these are civilians, the civilian members who are secretly supporting the National Liberation Front. These are not soldiers. This is uh, a woman who works in the uh, Women's Liberation Unit or uh, somebody who's a courier or somebody who's uh, uh, currying rice to uh, Viet Cong uh, guerrilla units. It was all civilians. Once they had identified these people, they would send out the CIA's hit teams, which were called counter-terror teams. And um, uh, the military lent support. The military provided most of the people that worked for the Phoenix program. It was always under CIA direction. And in the early years, it was um, largely staffed in the provinces by the CIA, but it was always under CIA direction. But once the, the, the majority of the people that worked for the Phoenix program were military people who were detailed to the CIA, and there was hundreds and thousands of these people, plus there were thousands and thousands of South Vietnamese secret policemen. There were thousands of, uh, of these armed propaganda teams of uh, hit teams. It was just a massive, massive undertaking. It was secret for the first two years, but it all relied on uh, very sophisticated theories of, uh, it, was, it was computerized, of uh, highly sophisticated theories of organization and management, uh, which is why when they, the, the person who was uh, detailed to create the Phoenix program was a guy I interviewed at length. His name was Nelson Brickham. He was a graduate from Yale. Uh, he was considered an organizational genius. And uh, he described at length to me, and it's in the book, how he actually used models from Ford Motor Company and uh, businesses, uh, big corporations, in order to streamline and bureaucratize, which was essentially a system of political repression in South Vietnam. If you don't do what we want, Either you get killed or you go to jail. And that's one of the best explanations I can give you about the Phoenix program. Of course, it's, it's much more. It, it relies very much on um, corruption, on um, giving the South Vietnamese policemen uh, an incentive to uh, coerce and to make and to bribe and extort South Vietnamese citizens, and um, it was done on a massive scale. The whole idea was to give these the policemen and the people who were collaborating with the United States a free hand to make money off this program. Otherwise, they they wouldn't have done it. Just like um, the you know, CIA allowed its generals and its politicians to import and sell heroin and other drugs in South Vietnam. They incentivized this program. They gave the, the, the police and the, and the military a free hand to extort the people and uh, just totally fractures the society as a way of um, uh, being able to either intimidate or, or coerce or entice somebody into working for the South Vietnamese government. And, of course, it didn't work. The people... Uh, resisted in very heroic ways. There's a lot of revisionist history about the Vietnam War now, and Phoenix is being touted as something that was actually very successful because it knocked off so many people. The program is estimated between 1967 and 1971 to have killed 
through its, the Phoenix assassination team, some 30,000 people. The South Vietnamese put the figure at 40,000. My own estimate is that those are way off, and, and, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people were sent to prison through these um, uh, Stalinist tribunals, which relied totally for evidence on the testimony of an anonymous informant who just who would just say, you know, well, that guy over there stole something from me, so now I'm going to inform, you know, or, or, or his dog pooped on my lawn, so now I'm going to say he's, he's a sympathizer for the, the Viet Cong, and then off to jail the guy would go. He wouldn't even be able to appear in, in uh, court to, to defend himself. It was that, that horrible of a situation. And um, uh, so, but uh, nevertheless, a lot of revisionist historians now are, are sort of overlooking those details and saying it was a very successful program. Uh, and um, it has indeed served as the model nowadays for the war on terror and as a model for uh, the Department of Homeland Security in terms of uh, systems theory. Was the Phoenix program in effect all through the war up until the end of the Vietnam War, or did they ever end it? No, it, it went through a couple of different manifestations, but it never ended. I have seen telegrams in a Freedom of Information Act request as late as 1975 talking about how you know the Phoenix program was still in, a, in effect. There was a um, uh, negotiated ceasefire. Uh, this is at the end of 1972. And the villages that were um, actually supporting the National Liberation Front would actually start waving a, you know, their flag. And according to CIA officers I, I talked to, this just made it easier now for them to send their Phoenix teams out there and knock these people off. Because now they were, they were no longer secret, they were just advertising themselves. And that's one of the reasons that the ceasefire failed, just like all these ceasefires that the United States is negotiating in Syria or wherever always seem to fail because, like all the treaties that negotiates, it never, never abides by. And the, the greatest method for not abiding by any of these treaties is that the CIA is always behind the scenes operating in secret and trying to undermine them. And all the, all the, the press corps, whether it's in Syria now, Iraq now, Afghanistan now, or back in South Vietnam during the war, all the national security correspondents, the press corps, know exactly what's going on, but they have a deal with the CIA. If they want to keep having access to the plans and strategies and programs that the CIA is clandestinely operating in a country, they have to keep their mouths shut. And if some national security correspondent gets uh, moralistic about it, well, his editor and his publisher will fire him, send him off to um, Siberia. So it, it, it really is no distinction between the, uh, the press and the CIA. These are the same people, the same class of people. Uh, and they have the same exact interests and they have the same exact um, filters for making sure that nobody who, who is ideologically ideologically can't be assimilated, it's dispensed with. It never gets into that club. And uh, again, these things have been um, solidified in America through the kind of organizational geniuses and management structures that, that were used to create the Phoenix program. These people are adept at creating the social structures and the political structures that keep us repressed.
and they do the same thing in the United States that they do overseas. And um, uh, I had the added advantage of being able to talk to close to 100 CIA officers who were involved in the Phoenix program, and they thought that William Colby, who was at one time the director of Central Intelligence and was the CIA officer most uh, associated with the Phoenix program, uh, he, he had actually liked my idea for a, a book, and it helped me, and it introduced me to a lot of these CIA officers, and they spoke openly to me. So even though it's a difficult subject to understand, and even though talking about systems management is, assumes that you have a, um, a capacity to understand how a lot of different systems are being juxtaposed, and that's difficult, and it's off-putting to a lot of people, but if you really want to understand how it goes, you have to spend the time trying to learn about it. Uh, you can't understand the petrochemical industry in a day. You know, I mean, there, these things take a lot of serious study, and, and the Phoenix program was written with that in mind. That book that came out in 19 was that it would be a serious study that people would have to really spend a lot of time looking at in order to understand the complexities of political repression and social repression. It's not something that you can just say, well, Donald Trump's a billionaire and, and uh, you know, of course he's going to do it. You really got to understand the intricacies of it if you want to unravel it. I can certainly appreciate the complexity of it after looking at your book on the Phoenix program. You have mentioned that the Phoenix program was run by the CIA. And the CIA is considered a civilian organization rather than a military one. And you've already pointed out that, that of course, they work together uh, to implement the Phoenix program in, in Vietnam. That's a very complex interaction. With regard to the war on terror, homeland security, but specifically the Phoenix program in Vietnam, how would you analyze who had the upper hand? In your book, you've pointed out that the most important thing about counterterror was collecting intelligence, that, that that was the most important thing. So did that make CIA structure really more important than the military? Uh, yeah, in a word, because each of these two uh organizations, you know, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense on the one hand, has a mandate, a congressional mandate. Um, the military even has its own judicial system. It's a huge, immense society that exists somewhat apart but parallel to civilian American society. And historically, the military at the highest levels is commanded by civilians. The president is a, is a civilian, and he is the commander-in-chief. And historically, the United States has thought that in order to preserve democratic institutions, civilians have to manage the military. And so there's this presumption in a country like South Vietnam that the U.S. Embassy will be aware of everything that the military is doing. And the ambassador in any country will exercise control over the military. The military can't decide on its own to go into hemland provinces in Afghanistan and start blowing up villages. They have to get their okay from the embassy and also from the National Security Council 
in the White House, which is another civilian organization reporting directly to the president. Well, the CIA is a civilian organization. Even though it has a special activities division, which is paramilitary in nature, its paramilitary force operates clandestinely, covertly, and you never hear about it. You'll not hear about the CIA and paramilitary forces that are uh, operating around the world. Uh, and that's because these the CIA paramilitary forces are targeted against civilians. As soon as you start fighting soldiers in another country, then the military comes in. And their, their mandate is to fight the military forces in another country. But the CIA fights guerrillas. It fights militias like you'll find in Iraq. It'll fight an organization that's said to be a non-state actor like ISIS. It has a, a very specific mandate to uh, wage these kind of secret wars that are political in nature and aimed at civilians, not military forces. The other thing that the CIA does, which is you know part of this complex interaction with the military, it covertly begins experimental programs like the Phoenix program that the military will take over once that program, which has been developed clandestinely, covertly, is ready to go public. And you don't hear, again, you won't hear about that in the press because it's, it's considered a national security secret that the CIA will be organizing paramilitary forces or militias in a foreign country hiring uh, civilians from that country to work, not for their own government, but for the United States government, uh, either to uh, act as uh, counterinsurgents or, as in Syria, to act as insurgents trying to overthrow another government. The CIA is absolutely and totally responsible to do those things. If it rises to the point where a war begins, then the military comes in and takes over. So there's actually congressional mandates which uh, absolutely define where the CIA can go, and um, there are congressional mandates that, that define where the military can go, and there's attorneys in the State Department making sure that both these organizations play by the rules. So we may not know the detail, but it's all very carefully managed so that nobody is really stepping on anybody's toes, plus which... A program like Phoenix was it was instituted to more perfectly coordinate CIA and military operations. That's the beauty of it in, for for um, the uh, top managers in the National Security Council or uh, anywhere in the civilian government in the United States. They have now refined these systems and and the way to organize and manage them so that the Phoenix model can be perfectly applied anywhere around the world. And the CIA in 2015 actually reorganized itself. Uh, you can read about it in the New York Times. Uh, apart from creating a new digital innovations division to, to handle all its keystroking and, and hacking of foreign governments and, and our own and friendly governments, it actually has created 10, 15, 20 of these Phoenix-style centers around the world and is now organizing itself in this manner so it can more perfectly coordinate with military forces and the State Department in countries where it's, uh, it's fighting this war on terror. 
How large of a bureaucracy would you say that the CIA is? This sounds like it's gigantic. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, it, I think it has a budget that's, you know, it's always hard to, to find out what the CIA budget is because it hides a lot of its budget in the military or, or organizations that are covering for it. Uh, even the, like the DEA provides cover for CIA agents. You don't, you don't walk around when you're in the CIA with a little badge that says, hi, I'm in the CIA. Every CIA officer that's overseas has a cover. CIA, as part of its congressional mandate, can say to the State Department, we want 100 of your positions this year. And you can say to the military, we want 1,000 of your positions this year to cover our officers. Um, so a lot of that money, that money that's, that's um, uh, paying for CIA officers never gets acknowledged in any, in any budget because it's all undercover. And, and if, if you were to say, well, the military is covering, you know, $5 billion for the CIA this year, well, then it wouldn't be the CIA anymore. So, but just what's up front is like 35 or $50 billion a year. Of course, the military is um, $750 billion a year, but it's rapidly approaching a trillion, so the military is much bigger, and it's a much bigger organization. But in terms of affecting policy and in terms of having a political impact in the foreign countries that the United States would like to um, occupy militarily or overthrow, uh, the, the CIA has a much wider intelligence network. There was recently an article that just talked about, even though all the attention goes to the new gentle, uh, Joint Special Operations Command and the special forces in the military, that the CIA is really the force behind uh, all these special forces program. And it's paving the way for them. The, the Joint Special Operations Command never goes into a country and starts operating there until the CIA has set, set the scene for them politically and uh, corrupted the politicians in a particular country and made sure that they're going to allow the military to start sending special forces into a country. And, and the fact of the matter is that many of the highest ranking Members of the military's Joint Special Operations Command are actually CIA officers operating under uh, cover because, uh, and it was the same back in Vietnam, you can't have the military going into uh, a foreign country and wreaking political havoc. Everything has to be coordinated at a very high political level, which means liaison, the CIA has liaison with uh, police officials, with government officials, with civilian officials, civilian businessmen, landowners, all sorts of people in, a, in, a, in foreign countries that are, are covert. And that's where the bread and butter is, is, is having this political support that allows the military to go in. Unless you understand that, you, you can't understand the distinction between the military and the CIA. And I can tell you right now, the American press corps is not going to tell you. They, they, they're not going to explain all this in the kind of detail that you need to know to understand not only the relationship between the CIA and its organization and operations overseas, but how it also it, it impacts things that happen here in the United States domestically. With regard to the Phoenix program in Vietnam specifically, you had extensive talks with this guy, Mr. Brickham, and he divided 
the operations, according to your book, of Phoenix into three categories. The Hamlet Informant Program, which concerned low-level informants in the villages and hamlets. The Province Interrogation Center Program and Captured Documents. And Agent Penetrations, that is recruitment in place of Viet Cong. I was thinking maybe you could talk about these these three different operations and then ultimately about how some of these uh, terror attacks that were instigated, that the people carrying them out would dress as if they were Viet Cong. They were like false flag operations all over the place where these people that would stage attacks, violent attacks, on uh, the Vietnamese infrastructure, which is which is actually the... Um, well, just the people, they would be led to believe that these terror attacks were being carried out by the Viet Cong when, in fact, they were being carried out uh, by the South Vietnamese or the CIA or the U.S. military, right? Absolutely. Nelson Brickham was um, Magna Cum Laude grad of Yale University who uh, went into the, the CIA in 1949. He was a World War II veteran. Most of the CIA officers that I talked with were World War II veterans. They were older men. Most of them were retired. And uh, uh, because Colby, who, of course, was also a World War II veteran, he had parachuted into France with the OSS and organized uh, resistance to Germany. And the Germans, they, they were an older generation, and they looked upon me. My father was a World War II generation guy. He was a veteran, World War II veteran. Because Colby had sent me to them, they, they looked at me paternalistically, and they liked me, which is one of the reasons the CIA got so mad at me, because guys like Brickham actually thought that I was sent by Colby to get the absolute truth about the Phoenix program. And so they spilled the beans. They, they told me things that you'll never hear a CIA officer uh, talk about, things that you're not going to read about in a book written by some um, uh, war correspondent who uh, works for the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times or CBS. You know, they, they don't get anecdotal. They don't talk about it at length. You're not going to read lengthy interviews with anybody from the CIA, but I got that access. And, the, and this guy, Brickham, talked for, for hours and days. I probably spent a week with him. All my interviews with him are on the internet. They're online. Anybody who wants to, to listen to the interviews can go to them. Um, I recorded them. So it's there. And that's one of the reasons that the CIA hated me so much. They started spying on me. When I was doing this book, they actually you know, kept a file on me, which I got years later. But Brickham, gave me the Ph.D. level lesson in CIA operations. And that's all in the book. He talked not only about the Hamlet informant program, the interrogation centers, and the, and the value of um, agent penetrations. He talked about it in detail. He named the CIA officers who were involved in these programs. He told me about the um, conflicts and the competitions that CIA officers had amongst themselves and how these things affected uh, operations. For example, Brickham was in the foreign intelligence staff. And within the CIA, the foreign intelligence staff 
works in liaison with uh, secret policemen in foreign countries. His Brickham's, you know, sort of main competitor was a guy named Donahue who ran the CIA's covert action program. Brigham described that as an intelligence gathering operation that works undercover. The covert action people created the hit teams, the counter-terror teams. They created the armed propaganda teams. They created something that was called census grievance in which the CIA teams would go into a village. Apart from the Hamlet informant program, with a little shack, a portable shack, and, and, and people could go in and talk to somebody from um, uh, the South Vietnamese government about their grievances, you know, and, and supposedly they could do it without the police knowing about it. So, so um, there were all these different programs that were ongoing and were conflicting with them, and Brickham tried to bring them all to coordinate all of these even competitive CIA programs through the Phoenix program. All of a sudden now, the covert action people, that staff, would be working with the foreign intelligence staff. Brigham talked primarily about his programs as a foreign intelligence officer, which are the three programs you just mentioned, the Hamlet Informant Program, the Interrogation Center Program, and Agent Penetrations. Through their liaison with, with the uh, South Vietnamese police, Brigham and his foreign intelligence staff tried to recruit agents and in every informants in, in every village in South Vietnam. It was a massive program, totally funded by the CIA. The South Vietnamese police had no money. All the money came from the CIA. Uh, Brickham said it cost about a million dollars a year for all his foreign intelligence programs in South Vietnam. Of course, there were these incentives so the police could make some money on the side, which I was talking about earlier. The covert action programs, the guy who ran them, Donahue, whose interviews are also online, told me there that was about $25 million budget. So I even knew the, how much money the, they were ostensibly claimed. And Brickham said about the Hamlin and Foreman program, the whole counterinsurgency depended on informants. I said... Without informants, you're dead. With informants, you can do anything. So they poured a lot of money and a lot of intention into, into getting informants just the way, I should add, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and police departments around the country in the United States today are actively going out and trying to get informants to, you know, through all sorts of different programs that the Department of Homeland Security is, is uh, creating here in the United States. Same thing. Law enforcement can do anything if it has informants. It can't do much if it doesn't. So, you know, it's important to understand that that, that system is applied here as well. The big deal were the interrogation centers and the um, uh, agent penetrations as well. Brickham introduced me to the CIA officer who ran the interrogation uh, center program in South Vietnam, a guy named John Muldoon who I spent a couple of days with. I met him at his brother's polo farm. His brother was a fabulously wealthy attorney in Washington who owned polo farm, huge, you know, I mean, with the white fences for miles, you know, and the horses prancing around and all that stuff and guys with funny hats swinging sticks. Uh, Muldoon ran the um, interrogation center program. I spent two days with him, and he outlined to me the whole interrogation center program. 
The whole idea was to build an interrogation center in each province in South Vietnam, which was run by the special branch of the South Vietnamese police. A CIA foreign intelligence officer in each province was in a liaison relationship. He was an advisor to the top South Vietnamese special branch officer in the province. And together, they would work on identifying members of the National Liberation Front. Informants would, you know, say, well, uh, Vin, you know, over in that village, he um, is the party's district leader. And so the CIO would, would send a, a hit team from the covert action program to grab this guy and they bring him to the interrogation center. The CIA started building these interrogation centers in early 1965. The company they hired to actually oversee the construction was an American corporation called Pacific Architects and Engineers. They had a blueprint. The CIA would buy property on the outskirts of the capital in the province, you know, buy 10, 20, 30 acres, uh, clear it off. Uh, Pacific Architects and Engineers would hire a local South Vietnamese contractor and they would go in, they would build an interrogation center. Well, I describe them in the book and at length with this interview with uh, Muldoon. And they, they would then give, free of charge, this interrogation center to the South, Viet South Vietnamese police special branch. And they would, the CIA would train the South Vietnamese uh, police special branch officers who worked in it. They would train them how to interrogate people. There was usually about 75 cells. So I outlined the whole detail of them. They're pretty much the, the model for all the black sites. These Phoenix interrogation centers, they, they almost look exactly, if you've ever seen a, a picture of like the black sites that the CIA has in Poland or Thailand or wherever, they basically use the same model. And the CIA, so they build an interrogation center in every, in every province and um, hired the, uh, the special branch people to run them, paid all their salaries, and uh, they bugged them so that um, uh, they wiretapped them and they, they bugged the phones. The CIA would, you know, wiretap the phones so that anything that the special branch people were saying, they would hear that too. And all the reports that came out of these interrogation centers were sent to CIA headquarters in Saigon. And if they got a clue about somebody who was very important in the National Liberation Front, rather than going after that person, they would begin an agent penetration operation, which is, according to Brickham, the most important thing that the CIA does. So now you get into real espionage intelligence operations when you start talking about agent penetrations. You know, you've got a guy in the interrogation center and he says, you know, leave me alone, don't kill my family, and I'll tell you who the district party chief is. The, the member of the National Liberation Front who's a member of the Communist Party, the Lao Dong Party, I'll give you his name. And at that point, and I describe the process in detail in my new book, the CIA is organized crime, how the recruitment process, I didn't have time to do it in the Phoenix program book, but I, I do it in this new book. They begin uh, agent penetration operation, which are very complex. It's the nuts and bolts of what the CIA does in liaison with the special police in a foreign nation. It's the big thing that they do everywhere. They try to get 
as an agent, somebody who's in the um, in South Vietnam, they tried to get people working for them who are actually in the National Liberation Front. And if they could get them in a guy working for them or a woman working for them, they would leave them in place for two, three, four, five, ten years if they could. And they would protect these people. And these people would report back to the CIA and the special branch of the South Vietnamese police the plans and intentions and strategies. So all throughout South Vietnam, at the same time that the Phoenix program was trying to pacify through violence, intense violence and coercion, the threat of going to these courts where simply being informed upon that you were going to go to prison without because you had no defense. At the same time, they were pacifying the lower level, the, the rural population. They were working to preserve the higher levels of the National Liberation Front. They're actually protecting it throughout the whole country. Part of it had to do with the fact that if the CIA and the South Vietnamese Special Branch started bumping off the senior level people of the National Liberation Front, well, they would go start bumping off all the senior level people of the South Vietnamese Special Branch. They all knew each other. They were related to each other. I had one CIA guy tell me this story. His name was Ed Brady. My interviews with him are available on the Internet as well at a place called Cryptocom. They're all there. And Brady was working for the Phoenix Directory. And he was working in liaison with a very senior South Vietnamese special branch officer. And they were going around and they were inspecting Phoenix program operations around South Vietnam, they, you know, just like management does, you know, you got to go look at the factory here, or the warehouse there, you know, and make sure everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. And Brady was working in Saigon at a very high level for the CIA. And he was working with a very high level special branch guy. And they went to a city called Dalat, which is in central Vietnam. And they're sitting in a little cafe. And the South Vietnamese guy says to Brady, that's the province chief's wife. He said, he said, that's the South Vietnamese wife, and she's going around getting the monthly payoffs here in, the, in this restaurant from people, from, in this diner. And Brady said, well, why doesn't she have one of her subordinates doing it? And he said, well, it's not the, the South Vietnamese province chief. That's the National Liberation Front province chief. The, you know, but I know her, you know, and I know her husband. I mean, we all know each other. And Brady said, well, let's, let's grab her. Let's set up an operation. Let's, you know, so we can ambush and capture her husband. And the South Vietnamese guy looked at him and he said, well, you know, Ed, you're going to be gone in six months or maybe a year. But I got to live here, man. And if I start laying a trap for his wife and I start using his children as bait, what do you think they're going to do to me? And, and so... There was a, at the very highest levels of this intelligence war, there was what was called a modus vivendi. An accommodation had been reached. And the people who suffered, as in every, any country, were the poor people. And they're the ones that got smeared and creamed and stomped upon. And there was no protection for them. But through these agent penetration operations, there was a, a, another that's where the modus vivendi was carried out. So they're so sophisticated. The things that are going on are so detailed and, and so vast 
that you have to understand that this is the way the CIA operates in every country around the world. It's doing the same thing in, in Great Britain. It's doing the same thing in France. It's doing this in Ukraine. It, it took the CIA 20 years to get enough agents and enough Asian penetrations and to corrupt enough secret policemen in Ukraine so that they could pull off the coup there that they pulled off a couple of years ago. That's something that the CIA does. That's not something that the military does. And the formation of uh, paramilitary forces in Ukraine, that's something that the CIA does. It may have a, a military guy who's detailed to them, you know, and leaves the military special forces and goes to work for the CIA. He's not actually a CIA employee, um, you know, with, the, with life insurance and, and uh, retirement fund and all that stuff. He's just detailed. You know, the CIA will have a lot of those military people come in and help them to organize militias and flesh out these operations. And they work very closely with military intelligence doing these sorts of things. But that's, that's what the CIA does. And in a, even in a country we're at war with or occupying militarily like Iraq or Afghanistan, the CIA is, is handling these political and police operations apart from, from the military. And as Nelson Brickham stressed to me, any insurgency, counterinsurgency, is essentially a police affair, not a military affair. Because you have to have informants in the civilian population, you have to have these secret interrogation centers where you can work the civilians over and a system of courts set up where you can send them to prison and coerce them extra-legally. And you have to have these modus vivendi through, the, through these uh, agent penetration operations that protect the secret policemen. So they don't have to worry about getting bumped off and they can operate for years. And you corrupt them and you give them all sorts of uh, money and, and gadgets and, and, in some cases, Swiss bank accounts so that they'll let you do all these extra-legal things. And these systems have all been perfected in the 75 years that the CIA has been operating, and now they're computerized, and now they're assimilated into uh, the Internet and, and, and all the digital things that are going on. And the, the guidelines with the military are refined. It's absolutely misinformation and in some cases disinformation by uh, people in the media, left, right, central, doesn't matter, to think that somehow the military and the CIA are working at odds with each other. They are very closely coordinated. They're, they're indistinguishable from each other. And, and especially when it comes to the special forces, they're basically the same thing. And uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, the CIA and the, and the Joint Special Operations Command are uh, absolutely compatible and indistinguishable. In the province interrogation center program, were you told about torture when you were interviewing a lot of these people who had been in, this, in the Phoenix program in Vietnam? Yeah, the... the um the guy who told me about it, this guy, John Patrick Muldoon, said, um, absolutely. You know, and he blamed it on the South Vietnamese. He said, well, the South Vietnamese use the old French methods. But, of course, it's a secret program. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request 
for all the information that the CIA had on this PIC program, the Province Interrogation Center program. They won't release the files on them, but there are files detailing everything that happened in every one of these interrogation center programs. Uh, so the knowledge, again, is there. Uh, and, of course, the, the ultimate was the tiger cages at um, Kansan Prison, 90 miles off the coast of South Vietnam, which was sort of the, the mother of all uh, interrogation centers. And it was the place where all the high-ranking uh, captured uh, civilians who were in the National Liberation Front were, were sent. They were sent to uh, Kansan Prison. And that's where the infamous tiger cages were, um, which were really no better than anything that was going on in these interrogation centers. It's just a concrete cell. People were shackled into position, into a sitting position, and left there for a year. Uh, their legs would deteriorate. There were pictures after the ceasefire in 1972 of some of the people that were released. And they're actually sitting on little, like, skateboards because they couldn't use their legs anymore and just pushing themselves around. So the, the level of uh, torture that was going on in these interrogation centers beyond anything you can imagine, and it's never been reported and um, it's uh, one of the deepest, darkest secrets of the, of the CIA's involvement in the Vietnam War. And not only has it never been reported, but um, it'll never be. Uh, nobody will ever be able to make a case because it amounted to war crimes on a massive scale, beyond what anybody could ever imagine. And, and like I said, these interrogation centers have become the model for, for like the black sites that the, the CIA sets up all around the world. Pacific Architects and Engineers was the construction company that designed them. And finally, you write in your book on the Phoenix program, Phoenix symbolizes an aspect of the Vietnam War that changed forever the way Americans think about themselves and their government. Central to Phoenix is the fact that it targeted civilians, not soldiers. Yeah. And guess what? Uh, the people that run our society feel the same way they, about us, the citizens of the United States, that they feel about the citizens of South Vietnam. And they may tell you that you're special because you're an American, but you're not. And um, as the income inequality divide gets bigger and bigger, and as the Department of Homeland Security spreads its informant nets and its um, uh, the same programs that the CIA created in South Vietnam as these, this is the same thing they have in store for us here. It's why it's important to understand the systems, how the systems are used to manipulate political and social movements, uh, the systems behind political repression, which in the United States are highly refined, but we're civilians too. And uh, all these programs that, that were perfected in South Vietnam and perfected over the years are being turned on us. And uh, the, the historical arc is there, and you can see it happening before your eyes. And it's going in a, in a, in a predetermined direction, and it's not going to get any better. Douglas Valentine, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Well, I wasn't successful this year. I've been trying to focus on positive news, and that is not particularly a positive hour. 
I will admit it grabbed my attention and I thought this really does deserve a wider audience. This is going to help people understand what's going on. And the next episode of Guns and Butter, 359, is also with Douglas Valentine and also fairly depressing stuff. But I thought, let's give us some positive news. So as a reminder that alternative opinions were very much alive and well during the time of the Vietnam War, let's hear this famous speech. This is why I am opposed to the war in Vietnam by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And to focus on the central idea of this episode, you may wish to compare and contrast his magnanimity with the close-mindedness of the CIA's if they're not for us, they're against us, and if they're against us, then it doesn't matter what we do to these people. The time has come for America to hear the truth about this tragic war. I've chosen to preach about the war in Vietnam today because I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. The truth of these words is beyond doubt. But the mission to which they call us is a most difficult one. Even when pressed by the demands of inner truth, men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom. There has never been such a monumental dissent during a war by the American people. Polls reveal that almost 15 million Americans explicitly oppose the war in Vietnam Additional millions cannot bring themselves around to support it. This reveals that millions have chosen to move beyond the prophesying of smooth patriotism to the high grounds of firm dissent based upon the mandates of conscience and the reading of history. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact that there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. 